0: The information contained in this podcast is an expression of opinion and does not constitute investment advice. This is the Gold Money Podcast with Dominic Frisbee, keeping you up to date with expert opinion on precious metals and the markets. Hello and welcome to the Gold Money Podcast, hosted in association with Frisbees, Bulls and Bears, with me, Dominic Frisbee. It's the 17th of January. Sitting opposite me today is a very interesting young Englishman, Andrew Craig. Um, He spent over a decade working in financial markets for various finance firms in London and New York. These included UBS, Credit Agricole, and two smaller boutique firms. He runs the website plainenglishfinance.com. I don't think you need a BA to understand what that website's about. He has a degree in economics and international politics and also has some experience Working for a U.S. congressman on Capitol Hill, his first book has just come out. It's called "Own the World," and he's here to tell us all about it. Hello, Andrew. Welcome to the program. Great to have you on. Um, why don't we start? Why, why don't you tell us about "Own the World"? What, what? Well, let's start. Why don't you tell us what motivated you, you to write it?
1: Perfect. Thank you very much, Dominic. It's very good to be here. Uh, I was in a bar in Miami in 2007 and for the umpteenth time was speaking to somebody who had a fantastic job uh, and made a very, very good income, but was at pains to tell me that they would never trust the finance industry and would never invest in shares or commodities or bonds. And even though they're in their mid thirties, making a fantastic um, amount of money in in their chosen metier, they they just didn't ever contemplate the idea of investment. And for the umpteenth time, I thought that is a tragedy and that if people could really understand that investment is is a lot easier than most people give it credit for. Um, then the dividends paid in their personal lives over a period of you know two or three decades are enormous. Um, and so I resolved at that at that point to uh, spend another two or three years working in finance and then uh, quit my job to set up Plain English Finance and indeed to write this book, Own the World. Um, and the basic thrust, therefore, of Own the World is that financial literacy on both sides of the Atlantic is quite astonishingly poor. And I think even people I know who are top lawyers at top law companies in London, or even, dare I say, some people who work for investment banks, when it comes to the nuts and bolts of their own personal financial situation, they go to pieces. An analogy I use, which um, may seem a bit spurious, but I hope will not be as we, as we go through the conversation is that when we're 16 or 17 years old, we all learn how to drive a car. Everyone, or Nearly everyone learns how to drive. Um, we don't hire a driver. Yet, to my mind, fi- having true financial literacy is a life skill that is actually probably in the long run of your life more useful than learning how to drive a car. But for some reason, this is an enormous blind spot for everyone and nobody learns about personal finance. So this is, I'm on a sort of one-man crusade, if you like, to try and change that through the website plainenglishfinance.com
0: through my book, Own the World. Um, do you think there is I won't say conspiracy but I mean you and I both share the same love of clear language and the same loathing of obfuscation do you think there is it's almost deliberate within the financial industry to use language that alienates people or do you think it's it's just an inability to express themselves clearly is covering up the fact that they just don't actually know what they're talking
1: about. I think it's a combination of both. I think there's no question, and we'll p- probably get on to this topic conversation, but there's a massive, there has been for the last many decades, a huge conflict of interest between uh, the financial advice industry in the UK and the man in the street. Because if you go seeking financial advice, there's a very high likelihood that financial advice will put you into products that pay them the best commissions uh, rather than products that perhaps are best suited to your needs. And that's something that the FSA, the Financial Services Authority, have recognized of late, one might suggest not a moment too soon, and are taking steps to try and change. So, so I think as part of that whole conflict issue, then perhaps uh, financial advisors have chosen more obfuscatory language. Um, but equally, I think some of the um, rules imposed on them by the Financial Services Authority have made that a natural progression. If, if you have to jump certain regulatory h- hurdles and put in lots of disclaimers before you sell somebody a product, then by that, that very fact means that you will quite often have quite tricksome language. You know, past performance is not necessarily a guidance of future performance. If that's the case, then how do we decide on elections and how do we pick football teams, et etc.? Et past performance, to my mind, is quite often quite a useful indicator of future performance. But if I'm a financial advisor, I'm not allowed to say that to people um so that, i i think i'm not sure if that
0: answers your question it no it absolutely does um so the it, your book's called own the world and the its big theme is is enabling people to take charge of their own finances absolutely it's, nice. it's, and it would stop people like Sting having their money stolen by their accountant and so on or you would so like to think so yeah. but at the same time you know if i'm a, an incredibly successful comedian or a successful rock star or whatever it is. Often, I just want to focus all my energy and all my creativity onto um, onto yeah, being yeah. the funniest yeah. person or the best singer or whatever it is. And it actually suits me to have someone else look after my finances.
1: I, I think that's a fair comment. But um, the simple fact is, if you seek financial advice, it's very expensive. Now, if you are a multimillionaire comedian or actor, then that's probably not that problematic for you. Um, although, as you just said, it was for Sting. Um, but, but I think for, for the man in the street, for people who are on, let's say, the average UK income upwards, yeah. um, the, the difference between paying away, let's say, for the sake of argument, 1.5%, 2% per annum, and decidedly more when you first make an investment in an ISA or a pension product, and not paying that away over the course of a lifetime of investment between, let's say, your late 20s when you might start saving or early 30s, and your retirement at fifty-five, the difference—the the, the difference in the compound impact of paying two percent per annum or thereabouts of your money away, can literally be a seven-figure sum. I mean, the difference between making ten percent and twelve percent per annum in the last ten or twenty years, even on low numbers, saving two hundred pounds a month or thereabouts, is
0: three hundred and something plus thousand pounds. So, let's go back to first principles. i never never—I'd never. I mean, I'm I'm aware of compound interest. Yeah. And I think it's one of the big themes of your book. i And we talk about it. But I'd never thought of the effect of compounding costs and they are enormous Um, so
1: if we go back to first principles 50% of people in this country have no pension provision whatsoever and they're expecting the government to pay for them in old age and we'll come on to how do you know what the number is in the states? I think it's
0: similar Okay. Yeah, I don't know actually. Uh, Most of the make. mistakes we make here are made there. Exactly, vice versa. Or,
1: or, and they've already made them before we have. So 50% of people have no pension provision. The other 50% have a woefully inadequate pension provision for their old age. I and mean, ultimately, nowadays, you've got 30 or 40 years to fund, potentially, after yeah. you retire. You want to Most retire people's pension
0: time. provision is some kind of real estate. Or the sensible ones who've got some kind of real estate.
1: We hope, but uh, you know Lionel Needleman, who's a famous uh, p- publisher on writer on the property market in the '60s, said in 1965 that the property market's awful and very hard to transact. And there's a there's a quote in my book about it, which escapes me for the time being. But um, people in the '60s would have thought you were insane if you wanted to borrow 110 on a on a property, as people were with Northern Rock in the last few yeah. years to fund your retirement I mean ultimately you're going to have to move, maybe you can do that with a portfolio of properties and I actually go into property in some detail in chapter 6 of my book but I wanted to get back to the point even the people with private pensions in this country have on average saved £30,000 at retirement age now £30,000 at current annuity rates is enough to buy £77.50 a month of income I would imagine the great majority of our listeners and people in general will need a great deal more than £77.50 a year. I'm to not live even on. sure if
0: £77.50 covers my tube fare. Exactly. <laughs> so, this is, without
1: exaggerating, this is an enormous national crisis which politicians don't have any. Uh, inclination to deal with, because it's incredibly unpopular to stand up and say, we've made a massive hash of things for the last two or three decades. And
0: boring, and it's somebody else's problem. Exactly,
1: in exactly. So, and as Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of all governments, apart from all of the others. So no, no politician with a five-year electoral term is going to stand up and try and resolve this problem, which leaves us in a predicament, and this is why, uh, without wanting to sound too pretentious, I'm on a one-man crusade to try and sort this out. Well, hopefully not a one-man crusade, I think there are other people trying to do a similar thing, but um, I really want to get back to um, teaching people that finance is much less frightening than they previously thought it was. And I go back to the, 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 the car analogy. If you learn how to drive, however many dozens or hundreds, possibly, of hours it took you to drive, depending on how yeah. how good you are uh, at picking up that particular skill, honestly, if you spend the same amount of time on with the odd how to invest book, um, you should be able to run your financial affairs. And for reasons that I'll come on to now, run them a lot better than most financial advisors. We've already talked about stripping out the cost of using a financial advisor. There are also other um, inherent reasons why financial advisors are unlikely to give you optimal financial advice. Um, So if I go into a bit more detail about the main themes of the book, uh, I talk about two amazing facts about finance that are very poorly understood by the general population. The first of which is compound interest, which Einstein described as the eighth wonder of the world. Um, or allegedly describes the eighth wonder of the world. Is that one of those un-
0: unsubstanties? It is indeed,
1: and words. there are mixed uh, reactions on online as to whether he ever said that. But let's assume he did, whether he did or not. The simple fact is most people really, really have no idea. And I'm talking about, I've got friends who are partners at top law firms in London who don't grasp this. And I even have colleagues who I used to work at, at, at major investment banks with who don't grasp. It's the sheer scale of compound interest. The fact that there are some numbers in my book which say that Um, If you manage to perform in line with how gold's performed in the last 10, 15 years and and the better mutual fund managers like the Warren Buffetts of this world, if you can achieve those numbers, which you can consistently achieve if you look at the world in a certain way, then saving £200 a month and starting with £5,000 over 30 years on those sort of numbers, you end up with a pot of £8 million. That is the sheer power of compound interest. And we
0: can get. Crikey. Say that again. If you you start off with an investment in year one of 5,000 pounds. Let's say
1: age 25, you've got 5,000 pounds and you can save 250 pounds. I may have said 200 pounds, but 250 pounds a month. Yeah. And you bring in, now let's be clear, I'm talking
0: about returning 20% per annum, which is punchy, but it's not impossible. At the end of year one, you have five grand plus 12 times 250. Exactly. Plus 20%. Exactly. Which is something like 9541 or something off the top of my head.
1: But over 30 years, by the end, because the the, the exponential nature of compounding, it's so powerful that you literally end up with 8 million pounds. Now, again, in that scenario, if you were to make 2% less because you paid those fees away to an IFA, or more than 2% in certain funds um, and with certain IFAs, it will literally have a
0: seven-figure impact on your life whether or not you decide to run your own money or have somebody else run it for you. Do you have the figure to hand if you were paying two percent per year to an IFA? What what that eight million would it actually be?
1: No, I don't. But I, if you go, back, if you scale back down to the difference between what I can tell you is the difference between ten percent and twelve percent for the sake of argument, because yeah. there's a table in my book which has all these numbers. Yeah. Uh, over by the, up to year twenty, off the top of my head, it's seventy six thousand five hundred pounds difference, and up to year thirty, it's
0: three hundred and sixty thousand pound difference right. to your pot. So you, you talk. One of the things you're one of the prerequisites there is that you make 20, 20% Absolutely. Now, you know, one mistake I um, make in my trading is to keep aiming for the bullseye. Yeah. And, uh, you know, keep trying to find some stupid junior mining stock that's going to be a five-bagger or something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, more often than not, it isn't. And uh, particularly when the, the whole market's trending down. And, you know, I think if I, rather than did that, if I just concentrated on making 20% a year, you know, with the most simple basic technical analysis, it's really not that hard to do. It, so when I see low-risk fund managers, you know, chiming in with 7 eight, ten 8%, 10%, mm-hmm. I mean, I, it, it is harder when you're actually doing it. It's easy to do it in principle. It's harder when you're actually doing it. But I, I don't think it's that hard to come in with 20%. It, which you know, Simple trend following and, yeah. and a little bit of... Um, uh, Recognition of ranges and, and which
1: which sounds incredibly spurious to a lot of people listening. You know, yeah. I thought you can sit here and say, "Oh, I can definitely pull in twenty percent per annum," and I think that's because people are willing it's uh, just uh, buy gold. Well, yeah, well, that, and that's been true for the last you know eleven years or, or thereabouts. And and actually, uh, one very very simple strategy that you could overlay on if you assume that precious metals are in a huge bull market for all the reasons that you and yeah. I agree on, and potentially many of our listeners. Um, that's fine, but buy and hold is actually nowhere near as good a method of, of um, playing that theme as using something very simple like relative strength index, where basically if, re- if the RSI crosses up through 30, you're a buyer. If it crosses back down through 70, you're a seller. Now that strategy, I haven't actually formally back-tested or anything, but I can tell you on my own personal money, that one strategy in both gold and silver for the last decade has, has outperformed pretty much any mutual fund that I could have invested in in the world. Now that makes me sound... I'm I'm the first person to be wary of that reality myself. I'm not claiming to be able to outperform Warren Buffett and everyone else. And let's be clear, I haven't, because I've only used a certain percentage of my net worth with that strategy, and other strategies haven't performed as well. Obviously, hindsight's 20-20, and I look back now and say, I wish I'd used 80% in gold, 20% in silver, using the RSI, and I would have been making 30-40% per annum with with all of my assets. That strategy may not continue working in future, which is always the problem. You know, we yeah. backtest
0: a successful strategy. But, but I think more importantly, one thing I deal with in the book is... You, I should say you are a home trader. You, you, you trade your own money as yeah. well as being a writer and everything else that you do. You, you, you are it, it's, a, a private investor.
1: It's been keeping the lights on since I left employment two and a half years ago. Uh, but would have done a better job of doing that had I curtailed my tendency to continue skiing and behaving a little bit like a stockbroker. Um, but yeah, I mean, my net returns have been really, I've been very pleased with, with the way things have yeah. worked out on that front. Um, and I, and, but my point is, you know, I'm not sitting here, we're not sitting here claiming to be able to you know, outperform everyone else in the world make 20% per annum. But I think if, you are, if you're prepared to look at the world in a certain way, and I think, I think a lot of people have incredible blind spots within um, running their, their money. Uh, and that includes finance professionals. So, for example, I describe people who follow fundamental analysis and people who follow technical analysis as cats and dogs. And they have a real cat versus dog kind of, oh, you know, I've heard people say that technical analysis is black magic and fundamental analysis is, is completely pointless if they come from whichever school. Then Anthony Bolton comes along and uses the two together and returns 19.5% per annum for, I think, just short of 20 years. Anthony Bolton, yeah. Fidelity Fund Manager. Um, so I think that you know that's one area where people just have this blind spot and they choose a church, and then they, as a result, they're never going to perform as well as somebody who's got a slightly more open mind. Um, and I think the other thing is, uh, which is a point I make in the book, is that today you've never had... Such fantastic, inexpensive financial products available to you as you do as a private investor today. Um, and one of the things I've done in the book is looked at Harvard and Yale, who have multi-billion-dollar endowment funds, which have been making fifteen, sixteen percent per annum for years, for twenty-plus years.
0: And I've tried to reverse engineer how they've done that, and that's why the book's. Called I know. I actually know the guy who manages the Harvard thing. I met him on a stag weekend about it. About a year ago uh, on, on the comedian Andy Parsons' stag weekend. Oh, wow, so there you go. Was he part of the stag or was he? Yeah, yeah, he was. He was a very competitive wicket keeper in the, in the <laughs> cricket match we played.
1: So, a Brits running the Harvard Fund now? Uh, yeah. or he's an American who plays cricket? No,
0: he was British.
1: Fantastic. Well, his predecessor, yeah, who I quote extensively in the book, put down fifteen percent He's a statistician. So,
0: I, I, I'm sure he told me he was managing the fund. I didn't read that much into it, so it's possible well, they, they he's do involved have, in it. They have
1: quite a big team okay. running that fund. But here's a multi billion dollar fund, both Harvard and Yale, who in 2008, when the world was crashing around our ears, one of them performed plus 8.5%, and the other performed plus 4.5%. And they've consistently outperformed or performed year in, year out. Now, how have they done that? They've done that because they do, and this is why my book is called Own the World, because they own. Precious metals and commodities, including timber, a very, very wide cross section of international so equities. they had a
0: good twenty twelve as well if, with their timber. Well, exactly. So, so, the whole thesis
1: here is that if if you if you just have one geography or one asset class, which is what most people do, yeah. M- most people in their pension have a UK yeah. equities fund. Or maybe a, a, a balanced fund with a, with a bond component, or a junior mining fund. Well, yeah, that's that's you, obviously at the racer end. But but if you're prepared to think of the world, think of the world in a certain way, as far, and there's another, there's a writer called Harry Brown who put together a portfolio called the Permanent Portfolio in 1981, and I have a table of its performance going back to uh, I think the early 70s, possibly even earlier, and the consistency in the performance of that strategy is phenomenal. Now the problem is in the past, you as a private investor in the UK market could not physically replicate the sort of methodology that Harvard and Yale employ. You couldn't own the world because you'd need to buy hundreds of assets, dozens of funds, which means administratively it's a complete pain. And in terms of the costs you pay away to your broker or to your financial services provider, it becomes prohibitive. Unless you've got millions of pounds, you can't replicate the strategy. That is no longer true uh, because of the the um, innovation that financial services companies have uh, undergone in the last few years, so we're all wailing about the financial crisis, whilst which is fair for for, for a fair number of people, but at the same time, there's this incredible um, it, quality, inexpensive quality financial services providers who are now out there in the market. Um, Do you you're not talking about ETFs, exploiting exactly. CFDs, exactly, and there's this sort of. Um, tendency for people, rightly or wrongly, to to wake up when they're 30 years old or whatever it is, when they finally think, oh, you know, I've got to be a grown up, I should maybe start investing some money and learn what my pension is and what's going on with that. And so they quite naturally walk into their uh, high street bank. And so not to name any names, but if you walk into one of the major high street banks in the UK market and ask to speak to a financial advisor... You will not be talking to somebody who has any grasp whatsoever of the cornucopia of fabulous investment products that are now available in the world. Um, In fact, the first time I ever had a meeting with a a supposed financial advisor, and this was in the city of London in Moorgate, with a major high street bank, the person I spoke to wasn't even aware that there were ISA products other than the ones that they sold in that firm. Now, if you think that financial advice from an individual like that is going to get you anywhere particularly when you're paying away 150 plus basis points per annum to that person, um, then it should be painfully clear that you're not going to get anything like a good result um, for your investment. So so trying to go back to first principles, my point is people need to understand compound interest. They need to understand that if they know where to go in the UK market, and the same is true in other English-speaking markets and in Europe, um, the products available and the, the, the access you have to monetizing an idea are the best they've ever been. If you think the oil price is going to go up, you can own oil inexpensively. 20 years ago, you really probably need a relationship with a private banker and a lot of money. So, the other thing I said is that you want to invest in global growth and own the world, which is what Harvard and Yale have done, hence the name of my book. GDP, global GDP, went from uh, up 131.5% between 2000 and 2010 most people ha- have not benefited from that reality. And that's, again, part of the whole thesis behind um, the book. But p- coming on to a subject which I know is quite close to your heart, given the gold price, is Just, just, just say that last statistic. So g- GDP
0: yeah.
1: between 2000 and 2010, in aggregate, if you yeah. add up global GDP, yeah. went up 131.5%. In other words, GWP,
0: gross, gross world product. Yeah,
1: exactly. Okay. R- t- plus 131.5%. And, and stock that, markets were flat. Depends which stock market. Mongolia wasn't, okay. um, Brazil wasn't, India wasn't, China wasn't. You would have, wasn't yeah. So, But most people haven't invested in those markets and they don't realise that they can very easily and cheaply access those markets now. And this is a sea change. It really is a, a change in the way finance works, which you will never hear about, from certainly from a financial so-called advisor at a high street bank. And actually fairly unlikely to hear about it from an IFA, because IFAs want to put you into old traditional mutual fund products that pay them good commissions.
0: I, I, I was unable to find uh, a broker who would let me buy the Zimbabwe index while they were experiencing hyperinflation. There you go.
1: <laughs> and I'm struggling a little bit to work out how to play Burma right now. Okay. And there are a couple of stocks listed in Singapore, but something as simple as that... Um, just owning us having a small grub stake in Mongolia. I mean I, I think I'm right in saying the Mongolian stock market as a whole is up something like three thousand percent in the last yeah. three or four years. So one of the things to talk about, we've talked about global growth, yeah. and I want to just quickly hone in on the other main theme of the book, which is that inflation is much higher than people think it is. And that the government numbers and this isn't a conspiracy theory, this is a statement of fact, and it's very easily verifiable even just with a quick Google. Go to shadowstats.com and understand how governments on both sides of the Atlantic have changed the calculation of our inflation numbers so that they really are farcically incorrect. And this is why the gold price is up 600% in the last decade, because really all it's done is track the real underlying inflation in paper currencies, and a little bit. Um, So gold has been a good investment on that basis. But this is one of the things that's a massive blind spot, uh, both in terms of private individuals who don't know that much about finance, but also... Um, in my experience with the fund management and the professional investment community, it, real inflation is about 10%. And it's probably uh, we probably don't have time to go into the precise details of why that is. But you can very quickly find out why that is by, by having a look at a website called shadowstats.com. Yeah. And whilst real inflation continues to be 10%, You better own inflation. Tell us very quickly. Okay, so there are three ways that the ONS in America, the Office of National Statistics, obfuscates the inflation numbers in the most, frankly, egregious fashion. And they are geometric weighting, substitution, and hedonic adjustments. So put simply, substitution is where, if the price of cod doubles, because there are only cod left in the North Sea, the the, uh, people who calculate the inflation numbers say, let's not use cod anymore, let's use farmed salmon or hot dogs for the sake of argument. So that immediately means that you're not taking a like-for-like like basket of goods and saying, this is how much these goods have gone up in price this year. Um, so that's number I've one. I've got a stat
0: for you, by the way. Did you know the NHS over the last 15 years has had 14% inflation?
1: Right. But this is it. And that's probably running. That's probably commensurate with the devaluation of the pound. The pound and dollar have both fallen in value by over 90% since 1971. This is what I'm talking about. And yeah. that's accelerating of late. Now, if, you're, if your salary is standing still... And the government's telling you inflation's two and a bit percent, but it's actually ten percent because the numbers are yeah. farcical nonsense. And this John, Ma- I'm struggling to find the John Maynard Keynes quote that I've got early in the book, That's but it's great. Basically, I says that not one man in a million can diagnose the There's... the reality of inflation, and that, that is why they these numbers are uh, are an appalling travesty. And as I say, this absolutely is not a conspiracy theory. This is verifiable; it's entirely factual. So let's talk about the other two. So that was substitution, swapping cod for farm salmon or hot dogs yeah. geometric weighting is where in America 17% of the American economy is the healthcare sector but only 6% of the inflation calculation uses healthcare so what they what the, the, the ONS do is simply say oops, uh, healthcare is becoming a lot more expensive across the board drugs, yeah. treatment, whatever it el- else it is, so rather than reflect that and reflect that reality in the inflation numbers, they just say why don't we just have a lower weighting for healthcare and then a higher weighting for something where prices aren't going up as much. And again, this this sounds like a conspiracy theory, but this is completely true. And my favorite one is called a hedonic adjustment. And a hedonic adjustment is where a television that's a 50-inch plasma screen or whatever, whichever product you want to talk about, uh, last year was $1,500. Let's say $2,000. This year, the same, essentially, Sony or Samsung or whoever it is, the same product is still $2,000. But what the Office of National Statistics say—oh, sorry, it's the BLS in America, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the ONS is in the UK—the BLS will say, ah, but there's been a qualitative improvement in that screen. This year it's a 60-hertz screen, and you can surf the web and look at pictures of Degar or whatever else. Uh, This TV is materially better than last year's TV. Now let's subjectively evaluate that and say, we think it's 30% better than last year's TV. Guess what? They then, rather than reflect the fact that it still costs two thousand dollars, they subtract thirty percent from that number, and that's how the inflation numbers get calculated. Which sounds like complete madness. It's it's the Wizard of Oz, but it, this is actually how inflation is calculated. So my point is, we
0: had we had uh, Ben Dyson on the f- a couple of weeks ago from the uh, Positive Money Group, and he looked at where new money that gets that gets created goes and I can't remember the exact number, but it's less than 20% goes into consumer goods, right. and yet inflation only looks at consumer goods, or CPI. Exactly. Uh, you and know, Something like 50% of new money creation goes into mortgages. CPI is inflation minus
1: inflation, basically, yeah. the calculation of it. I mean, the Farm Bureau in the States are saying that food prices are up 11.5% per annum. And that's, you know, you've had food riots in the Arab world, funnily enough, because wheat, cotton, everything has gone through the roof. But greater than 100%. I have tables that, reflect this in the book yet uh, we say that food inflation in America is one and a half, two 2 percent is what the official line is So, but the important thing about this is if you understand this reality which very few people do to, to paraphrase John Maynard Keynes one, not one man in a million understands this including much of the investment community and most of the talking heads you may or may not see on the BBC um, if you understand this reality you can invest accordingly so when in Own the World, I talk about owning the world, which basically means owning assets globally so that you catch those Mongolians and those Burmas and when China or Brazil or India or even a resurgent Europe, or resurg- I mean, Greece was the best-performing stock market in the world, one of the best-performing stock markets in the world last year. So you own the world and you also have to own inflation. And how do you own inflation? Back to one of your favorite themes, you own precious metals. Um, and, and to me, this, this is f- fairly irrefutable. You know, it's one of those moments in investment Nobody can predict the future, and uh, economists are woefully um, incorrect with their assessments. Worse than most. Worse than most, and um, but not that notwithstanding. If you know that public, private, and corporate debt levels are the highest they've ever been, and inflation really is ten plus percent, you can invest accordingly, and you will do. I can assure you that you'll do far better than walking into a high street bank asking to see a financial advisor who's had a weekend's worth of training about them world markets and then being given a very expensive and low quality product. So all of this is outlined in the book um, and I'd like to think that if people manage to wade through the 200 and something pages of the book, by the end of it they'll feel empowered they'll feel like genuinely learning how to invest is no harder than learning how to drive and I go back to that analogy time and time again because it's true and you can do a fabulous job with your own money if you're prepared to have a go.
0: Very good. Well, the book is called Own the World. It's available in real form and in virtual form. Both on Amazon. Both on Amazon. Um, you can buy it in the States, presumably. You can?
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Although apparently not, you can't get a physical copy
1: in Canada, I'm told. Okay.
0: Yeah. I know somebody else who tried to buy another book in Canada. There's there's obviously a conspiracy against Canadians reading books that are published in the UK. Possibly. <laughs> Who's to say? Um Andrew, it's been a real pleasure. Just as we close, uh, 30 seconds, one minute, what markets do you like at the moment? What don't you like?
1: Well, at, at the risk of um, being immensely boring, and I've had so many friends who hate me saying this, I still love the precious metals. Um, for, here's just a very simple fact. In the last, since we've been having this conversation, in the last hour, the Federal Reserve has created 100 million new US dollars, and world miners have found $10 million worth of gold. And whilst that reality continues to be true, to my mind, it's just unanswerable that the general trend for gold will be up. People who say gold is in a bubble, gold went up 24-fold between 1971 and 1980. It's only gone up 5.5, 6-fold in this bull market. And the reasons for it to go up this time around are so much more compelling than they were in the 70s. Russians, Indians, Chinese... Those were small economies with no middle class, and people under communism couldn't buy gold today they're actually being encouraged by their government to buy gold I think I think people who say that gold's going to go to three to five thousand and silver's going to go to a hundred plus dollars in the next three to five years are going to look very clever and I think people who say that gold is a bull market are going to be incorrect. That said, you should have a weather eye on entry and exit and I explain in the book quite a compelling and uh, uh, successful methodology for getting in and out of gold, which is to use a relative strength index so Precious metals is quite a boring answer, given that this is okay.
0: a precious metals focus. But there are plenty of other markets to look at, really. giving, giving that we're indoctrinating our listeners exactly. into the ways of gold and silver. Well, um, Andrew, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And uh, here's your invitation to come back on and talk to us in a month or two and, and, uh, and uh, let us know what you're thinking then. Once again, the book is called Own the World. The author is Andrew Craig. Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tom subscribe to the gold money newsletter at www.goldmoney.com to receive email updates on new articles videos and itunes podcasts from our gold research section